Hi, this is Bill Cates. Welcome to your March 2011 edition of Voices of Experience. We'll start this issue with another segment featuring Zamira Jones. Since Zamira is new to the NSA family, I'll remind you that Zamira has had a long and successful career in the radio business, managing 71 radio stations and all their employees, as well as launching Radio Disney. In our last segment, Zamira gave us some great insight into hiring a salesperson for a speaking, training, consulting, coaching business. Wow, that's a mouthful. In this segment, Zamira gives us some important ideas on how to manage a sales or marketing person. Most of what we do that's right usually comes across as simple. First of all, you want to have a a clear picture of where they're going and what their goals are and what their expectations are and that you are part of the sales process. Too many sales leaders, sales managers, heads of companies want to disconnect themselves from the sales process. It is a huge mistake. I have never seen a well-oiled machine of a sales organization where the leader was disconnected from the process. It doesn't happen, folks. So if you're serious about making big money and really having an impact with your clients, you need to be part of the process. Doesn't mean you need to be out front, but you need to walk to walk. You need to have the same mantra, the same language, the same focus, the same immersion in the numbers. So the salesperson you hire needs to have a command of the buying process. They need to really understand the changes of t- over time of your business and the, your client's business so that they can connect with them instantly. They need to rec- be able to recognize their needs and demonstrate to you that they can do that and that you need to be part of that process of change over time, recognizing needs, evaluating options, and resolution of concerns of your clients. That's what the salesperson is doing all day long. You need to be aware of that process. So let me ask you a question about that. You're talking about having the salesperson uh, have full knowledge and understanding of the buying process. It seems to me then part of the early training for a new salesperson would be have them talk to some existing clients, people who have already purchased already hired the speaker to speak, already bought the kit of materials or the training so that they can understand the thinking that the buyers go through, the decision process that the buyers go through. Is that the way to educate the salespeople? It is a key component to the second point, which is train, train, train. You're constantly in training mode. You never get out of it. Organizations that have not embraced the idea that what we do is breathe and train product knowledge and customer knowledge. And so, yes, they should they should spend time with the clients when they come on board. They should find out of the some of the best clients. Why did I hire hire your company? And and let let your salesperson hear those situations. It is tremendously beneficial, and it's amazing how many companies don't do it. So training is important, uh, is essential. Product knowledge is key. It's amazing how many speakers go out and speak for months, and the salesperson that's representing them hadn't heard them speak for months. Sometimes for longer than that, and you cannot have a good salesperson be excellent at it unless they did that. When I hired salespeople, they said, you must listen to 
the radio station that you sell. You know, there are salespeople that were like, well, I don't want to listen to it. It's not my favorite station. I like selling it. It's not my favorite station. No, you can't sell it unless you listen to it. You can't sell effectively unless you know that speaker inside and out. When your salesperson is cut, they bleed that speaker. And that's what you need in order to be successful. I am a big devotee of spin selling because it is primal to the uh, basic building blocks of great sales organizations. And um, you can just buy the book, Neil Rackham. It's a great book. And there's a continuum about sales management that will really help you understand this process. That's spin selling, S-P-I-N, right? Yes. Okay. Now, one of the things in the training process that is very important to have is making sure that you have the 20-minute pitch down, that everyone in your organization knows it, the two-minute pitch, and the 20-second pitch. So your salesperson can tell your story in 20 seconds, they can tell your story in two minutes, and they can tell your story in 20 minutes. And it's constantly refined and honed and practiced and role-played in the organization as part of your culture. It's something you always do. And third, measuring performance and measuring success is something that should be also part of your culture and your mantra. You should always be doing it. And it's always best when the management uh, measurement of success comes from the inside out. In other words, comes from the salesperson, not the sales manager. The salesperson should manage her or his performance over time. I'm going to give you two core uh, metrics that you should use that every sales organization should use. There are many that you can use, but if you only use two, these are the two to use. And if you use them, you will be in control of your selling process indefinitely. They are the efficiency ratio and the effectiveness ratio. The efficiency ratio is measuring something that's very central to being a successful salesperson. That is the number of suspects divided by the number of prospects. A suspect is the universe of potential doors that they could uh, go through knock on and go through. Let's say you have a mailing list of 5,000 names and companies or 2,000 or an account list of 250 possible prospects. That is your suspect list. Your salesperson is going to to knock on a certain number of those doors and go through them. Those, the number of those doors is, uh, are prospects because you're going to make a sales call when you walk through the door. So the number of suspects, the number of doors possible, divided by the number of doors you walk through is your efficiency ratio. And you can measure that on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, but your salesperson should be tracking it and you too, how many doors they're walking through. Make sense? Yeah. The next one is the effectiveness ratio. And that's the number of calls or the number of doors you've walked through, and now you're making a sales call because you walked through the door, divided by the number of orders that you take out and walk back out of that door. All right? So that's the number of calls divided by the number of orders is your effectiveness ratio. 
And that in those two ratios, efficiency and effectiveness, should be gradually but consistently growing and improving over time. The salesperson can calculate it his or herself. They can see how they're doing. And part of their job, part of their rite of passage to keep their job, is to continue to improve those two ratios. And if they just did that and nothing else, guess what? Your sales would grow. Now, the salesperson isn't the only one that's going to have accountability and self-accountability because self-management, which we'll talk about later, is the, is the best way to manage anyone. The marketing people. If you have a marketing person, and let's say that marketing person's job is to create warm leads or hot knocks, as some people call it, to you so that you can convert them into sales, and they'll use the internet. They'll use new media. They'll use uh, your website uh, and, and various web pages. And let's say you have a website. Let me share with you what the top websites in the country that sell products and services and use upsell strategy use. They have certain metrics that measure their success. And let's use that as a barometer. Well, your landing page. You have a certain amount of traffic going to your landing page. A certain number of those people that come to your landing page will end up opting in and wanting to be part of what's going on on your site. So that opt-in rate should be at least about 15% if it's going to match some of the most successful sites out there. Then once they're in and they've signed up and they've given an email address or an ID and password, that kind of thing, now you have the opportunity to do business with them and you're training them to upsell. Your marketing person is required to make sure that site it does everything possible to move things along. And so having a low cost option to engage them, a self-liquidating offer, say, is one of the things that they're charged uh, to make happen. And a 4 to 12% rate of opt-in at that level is what some of the best sites end up garnering. So you make sure you have a, a specific number that you want your marketing person to hit. So it, let me interrupt you for a second. Self-liquidating offer, does this mean something that is either free or you just cover your costs? You're not really trying to make a profit on, the, on that item? Yes, it's low cost. And this isn't where you make your money. This is where you'll, make, you'll have some revenue coming in to offset the cost of marketing for the upsell. Okay. So it's a low cost offer. All right. So we, 15% of the people that hit our website, this is a successful site. It's 15% of those people engage in the site in some way. And then what you said, about 4% of those folks will four act, to 12% oh, four will to opt 12. in for a low cost offer. 4 to 12 will opt in of that 15%. Okay. And then you're going you're gonna to try to upsell that group. And your marketing person is required to make sure that there is an effective upsell. The best sites out there are doing about 30% upsell from the 4 to 12%. So of that 4 to 12%, 30% of them upsell to a higher ticket service or product. Then of those 30%, 
Then you have the big ticket offer. You might be that big ticket offer or something that you provide, and that's where you, your biggest ROI comes from. And that upsell could be anywhere, if done well, between 10 and 15%. So you pick the numbers, you constantly move them up as they hit their goals, and now they can be measured and they can be held accountable just like the salespeople. Oh, that's good. You said a couple of things that I think are very important at the very beginning, expectations goals and expectations and making sure those are clear from the very beginning and then measuring their behavior to see if they're meeting the goals and expectations. Yes, and in our next session when we talk about management overall, I'm going to share about the concept of self-management and how to make that so crystal clear that your employee won't be in a position to fight you because you'll make it so non-combative but so clear on what you need that they can't help but comply or move on. Oh, I can't wait to hear that one. So, Zamira Jones, thank you for this session. Uh, good stuff as always. And uh, next time we'll talk about managing people in general, just any staff member. I think one of Zamira's most important points is that we, the speaker, owner of the company, need to remain fully engaged in the sales process. I know that many speakers like to abdicate their responsibility for sales and marketing in the guise of delegation, but we must never disengage from the sales process. In May of 2009, I attended the CSP CPAE Summit in Minneapolis, and I have to tell you that it was one of the most extraordinary NSA events I've ever attended. Everyone who was in attendance uh, was just wowed by the end of this weekend. Everybody walked away with incredible ideas, strategies, brainstorming, and the good news, CSPs, CPAEs, is that we're going to do it again. Randy Pennington, CSP, CPAE, and Sarah Michelle, CSP, have teamed up to put on a great program April 1st through 3rd in Dallas, Texas at the beautiful Jewel Hotel. It's a little boutique hotel. Randy says we're going to take the place over. And the theme or the title of the program is Delivering Your Brand in the Next Marketplace Reality. It's going to be very real world and a combination of presentations as well as a lot of group interactivity, brainstorming, sharing challenges, sharing solutions. I really would defy you to attend and not walk away with a ton of things to implement to build your business to the next level. I can tell you from past experience that this is going to be an extraordinary event. If you're a CSP and CPAE, you want to attend. If you're not a CSP, well, get cracking on earning your CSP because I can assure you this won't be the last opportunity for something like this. So again, it's April 1st through 3rd, Dallas, Texas, the beautiful Jewel Hotel. It starts around 5 o'clock on the 1st of April, that's a Friday, and finishes about 12 o'clock noon on Sunday the 3rd. I will definitely be there, and I hope to see you there as well. Our next segment is from Terry Brock, our technology guru for VOE this year. Terry really needs no introduction. He just needs a new haircut. Wait, I guess Terry Brock and haircut are words that don't really belong in the same sentence. His guest for this month, on the other hand, has a handsome head of hair. Take it away, Terry. 
Technology is about a whole lot more than just nuts, bolts, and wiggle pins. It's about a way of thinking and a person who has really helped a lot of us on how to think about living life, being speakers, and to make sure that we do things the right way is Dan Burris. He's one of my heroes, and he joins us now. Dan, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you, Terry. Great to be here. Dan, we're going through a lot right now. We're seeing our world turned upside down. We're going through the Great Recession. Lots of things happening. Speaking is changing. What kind of messages do you have to give people, not only about technology, but about how we should live and how we should approach things as speakers. Well, we're at the bottom of a mountain of change. In other words, you've seen a lot already. You haven't seen nothing. We've got even more coming. And that uh, we really are just in the foothills. And a lot of it is technology-driven change. I mean, look at how we're using Skype, or look at how we're using iPhones, or look at how we're using iPads. And by the way, we haven't had those that long. We're just beginning to have those kinds of devices that change how we live, change how we work, change how we play. As a matter of fact, really, they don't change. They transform how we live, how we work, and how we play. You know, when I was a, uh, a kid, I could uh, listen to my albums. It was a 33 and a third RPM album, one album per spinning disc. And then technology brought about a really great change. I liked it. It allowed me to have one small spinning disc. It had some real nice little silver colors to it called a CD. But better yet, I got rid of the hiss and the crackle and the pop of those old recordings. So it was a great change. Yeah, I remember those were really nice little CDs. We thought they would be around forever. Yep. And a matter of fact, I liked them so much, I purchased all my old music on CD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that really was a nice change. However, now in my phone is all my music, along with videos and other things. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't really a change. That was a transformation. It transformed how I listened to music. Uh, well, in that same way, we're going to transform, not change. We're going to transform how we sell. We're going to transform how we market. We're going to transform how we communicate. We're going to transform how we collaborate. We're going to transform how we train. We're going to transform how we educate. We're going to transform how we innovate. If we're only changing, we're going to undershoot. And by the way, everything I just mentioned, we all do ourselves, and we're helping our clients do as well. Mm-hmm. So we're in an age now where we're shifting from change to, whoa, full-blown transformation. You haven't seen nothing yet. And to me, that means a lot of opportunity. But it also means we need to manage our brands like we have never managed them before, our personal brand. I'm not saying to change your brand, but I think we're going to have to migrate it to a higher level of relevancy. I like that. A higher level of relevancy based on what our clients are asking for, because we're more than just speakers. We do many different things, and so we're migrating to a different level now. Yes, that. And secondly, know that if you give customers what they ask for, you'll undershoot every time. You know, no one really asked for an iPhone, and no one really asked for an iPad or many of the other great things that we've had throughout history. What we have to do is listen to what our customers are asking for, but then go the extra mile and ask ourselves, what is it that they would really want to do? They don't know they can, but they would really want to do this. And then I often look at technology and see if there's a way that can allow us to do just that. For example, uh, Terry, you were just showing me how we could use Skype to do uh, some amazing interviews and 
edit them as if they were done in a studio in a short amount of time. Uh, now, just a little while ago, that was impossible, but it's not impossible now. And frankly, before I talked to you, it was an invisible capability. But now it's fully visible to me, and uh, I know that I can do it. And by the way, I can use that to do some transformative things. So we're just talking about one little piece of technology right now. And... Uh, and we're talking about being able to leverage that in amazing ways. Again, we're at the base of a mountain. And I want us to really think about how can we help customers do what they didn't even know they could do? How can we position ourselves to be more relevant rather than less relevant? and yet keep our subject and our history solid. That's right. And those kind of things are very important. And as we learn those concepts, we'll be able to succeed as speakers in the future. Dan, I know you've got a new book coming out, but you talk about this subject there on that site. As we close here, what is the name of that site so they can get to it? Yeah, flashforesight.com. And that's the name of the book, Flash Foresight, How to See the Invisible and Do the Impossible. Well, Dan, you've led the way in many areas. You're one of my heroes. I really appreciate you. And thanks for joining us here on VOE. Thank you. With me right now is Steve Seabold, a longtime member of NSA. Steve, last year in Orlando, we got together with a pretty special group of NSA members who have businesses of a million dollars or more. Some of the members there had four or five and and even larger businesses than that. And we took a whole day to get together and, and share ideas. And what I'm excited about is in Anaheim, we're gonna have the full NSA uh, track uh, several days to get together. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, this program and, and, and why you're excited about it. Yeah, this is just a fantastic opportunity for all of us to learn so much from these speakers that have built up these million and multi-million dollar businesses. And as you said, last year was, uh, was just a really amazing uh, two days. And this year we have a whole three-day convention to, uh, to learn from people who have built these fantastic businesses. So I, I encourage everyone who, who came last year to, uh, to come back this year for the whole, the whole track, the full three days, and for, for brand new people who, if you can qualify for, if you've done at least a million dollars in 2010 in business, uh, send us an email. Send me an email at steve at govsebold, which is G-O-V-E, S as in Sam, I-E-B-O-L-D, Dot com. Send me an email. Let me know you're interested, and we'd love to have you in the room. I think it's going to be one of the best sessions we've ever had in NSA. Great, Steve. Thank you for stepping forward to uh, ride herd over this, uh, this group of uh, successful experts who speak. And again, if you uh, attended last year and you want to be part of it again this year, let Steve know. If you uh, believe you qualify for this group and want to learn more and uh, be part of the conversation, send them an email, and then we'll be in touch. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Bill. As I promised you in my very first Voices of Experience, I was going to bring to VOE some new voices, some from outside NSA and some from within our ranks. NSA member Paul Homily, CSP DDS, has been flying below the NSA radar, but no longer. Paul has built an amazing seven-figure business. Now, Paul starts out this interview talking about his career as a dental implant surgeon, but don't start wondering about the relevance to your business. That becomes very clear very quickly. I think we all have something to learn from Paul Homily. So, Paul, you've built a seven-figure business based on speaking, training, coaching, products. You know, what do you think are some of the critical decisions that you've made along the way when you think back to the beginning to where you are now, 
that, that have allowed you to get to this, you know, seven-figure business and more in some cases? I, I think the most important thing I did is I became an expert uh, at uh, implant surgery. I was a dental implant surgeon for 20 years, Bill, and um, I acquired um, a significant level of expertise relative to restorative dentistry and surgery. That gave me a substantive platform to speak from. Everything that I've done from my speaking career, for my speaking career really is a uh, sort of a product line extension of my career in dentistry. Even though I don't practice dentistry anymore, I have content expertise. and I think that's got to be rule one for anyone who expects to build a business of of disseminating packaging intellectual property. You've got to be an expert at something. You've got to know something really well. And I knew dentistry and still know dentistry extremely well. So number one, I became a content expert. Number two, Bill, is that I've written four books on the topic. And it's amazing what a book will do. A program chairman or a host or a sponsor or a company will call me and say, hey, I heard about you do this, that, and the other thing. And I'll listen to them for a while. I'll ask a few questions to understand where their needs are then i'll say well you know what you know i cover that in chapter four in my book and they go oh you've written a book i say sure i have and and you know then i pick up a book and i autograph it and put it in overnight mail and the next day they've got it and a week later i've got a signed contract so you know it isn't always that easy bill but the, the books sure help number three i've relied on some really good people over the years to give me a boost in the business and you know as far as NSA members who have been really contributory to me very early on a woman named Kathleen Hessert was a real early inspiration to me and and she pushed me in the right direction introduced me to the right people so I would say build content expertise as the foundation to it two document your wisdom books articles that sort of thing and three you know find some good people these aren't new formulas but you know it's an old formula but it's worked great for me Bill well, that's good as far as it goes. Let me go a little deeper with you if I can. A lot of members of NSA have a body of knowledge and expertise. They've written a book. They've tapped into the knowledge of NSA and the, and the membership relationships they've been able to create. But they haven't gotten to seven figures plus in terms of their sales. So there must be some other things you've done along the way. It sounds like one of those things may be the niche. In fact, you have two niches. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and see what comes out of that in terms of other critical decisions you've made. Well, the niche is key. I believe in going very deep but narrow in terms of content. And understand, I've been speaking full-time for the last, oh, 17 years. I practiced the dentistry for 20 years and then in 1995 retired from the practice of dentistry and have been full-time in this business since. I'm, I'm pretty deep into the niche. There is very few dentists who don't know me. I work with not only the dentists, but I also work with team members. I work with manufacturers, distributors, service providers, associations, educational institutes, and dental schools. I publish, and so I'm very vertically integrated. Speaking is only one aspect of what I do within the niche. I also consult with companies. I also create intellectual property on kind of a, a ghosting basis. I host my own private workshops, and I um, create public workshops for associations. So having the niche, really being well-known in a niche has been terrific for me. The other niche that I service is 
the niche of highly educated professionals. Now that's not so much of a niche that it, than it is a category. The sub-niches within that category that I'm beginning to be more well-known in are financial services and law. And my intention in both of those niches is to get as integrated into those as I am into dentistry. So uh, absolutely, Bill, having a niche is so much easier because, well, you've got word of mouth working for you. Plus, I know all the jargon. I know most of the players. I know the dirty little secrets. I, <laughs> I, I've had experiences on all sides of the equation, both from the patient end, the manufacturer side, and the like. And I'm learning that now in law and financial services. I'm learning the jargon. I'm learning the people. I'm learning the processes. So tell me about how you found these, these other niches, or did they find you? Were you just focusing in your vertical niche of dentistry and, and something happened that triggered this other work? Yeah, exactly right, Bill. They found me. I was doing a workshop up in Detroit, and a friend of a dentist was in the room, and uh, he happened to be an attorney. At the end of the program, he approached me, and he said, wow, what you're saying applies beautifully to what I do. Uh, the attorney's name was Patrick Barone, and he's a, a criminal defense attorney. And um, funny, you know, my work in dentistry really centers around helping patients make good health care decisions. That is, how do you build relationships with people? How do you establish trust in a, in a patient who, when the patient really doesn't understand their condition, nor do they really understand the process you're going to put them through? They're sort of like buying the invisible in a sense. Well, um, defense attorneys really have the same challenge. Um, it's been estimated that in jury exit interviews, 80% of jurors, Bill, 80% make up their mind guilty versus not guilty following the opening statements by the prosecutor and the defense attorney. The opening statement is a story or a summary. Well, that's exactly what I did with patients for 20 years, is that I helped the patients see themselves in the story. And so my work in dentistry is easily adapted to law and easily adapted to financial service. Financial services was really the same thing. A friend of a friend was at one of my programs. He happened to be a financial advisor. And next thing I know, I'm in front of his company speaking, and they referred me. And it's, it's funny, in dental, it took me, oh, probably five or six years to go from doing simple uh, knife and fork presentations for free to doing the national association programs. In law, it took me six months to go from free programs to the national programs. Of course, I'm a better speaker now, and I understand how to manage audiences and manage myself better, but uh, the, the central process involved in what I do with patients is really the central process that I use with attorneys and financial services providers. So I really didn't go after them, Bill. They found me basically by accident. And when I started working with them, I applied all the rules, all the, the processes that are used in dental with them. And there's some modifications, of course. Their language is different. The culture is certainly different, but I'm learning as we go along. Tell me about how you're learning. In other words, what, what are some of the things that you do to learn a new niche? Well, I, I immerse it. You know, like for example, law. I, I just did a the Ohio um, State Bar Association, and at the State Bar, they have vendors, and the vendors sell books, audios, uh, articles. I buy everything. I buy the books. I buy the CDs, and it's just a matter of me studying it and and learning it. I'm not an expert at it, but I don't have to be an expert at it to be interesting about it. And what I what I teach these guys, I don't I don't teach them the content. What I teach them is how to be interesting, revealing the content. That is the ultimate step in being influential. 
So I think that's an interesting thing you've done. You've identified other people selling things to your niche, and you've absorbed what they're selling. And I guess what they're selling is solutions to the problems. So you're learning about the niche through their problems and the solutions that other people are bringing, and that's enlightening you and how what you do applies to that as well. Is that is that a fair statement? That's exactly what I'm doing. And I, I think that's a good formula for most people to follow, is look at what you're doing now. What is, what is it about that you're doing now that you're doing really well? Like you, Bill. I mean, your stuff is terrific. You're one of the people who have influenced me over the years. You know, I get your monthly newsletter. I, I read about your referral ideas. Don't keep me a secret. I, <laughs> I've said that a thousand times to folks. And... If you look at what other niches are doing and, and ask yourself, how does my stuff apply to that? How can, I, how can I adopt my material, my unique ability to what they're doing? And it just so happens that law and financial services is a perfect match for the model that I used in dental. Right, and obviously that, that has to be a match. We can't uh, force it to fit. Uh, let's go back a second. You said something about... Uh, developing intellectual property on a ghosting basis. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that in, in dentistry, this is uh, more true in dentistry than it is anywhere else, oftentimes I'm asked to develop an, an instructional program, a training program for high-tech materials like CAT scans or CAD cams or uh, financial planning, highly technical services for my niche in dentistry. Um, I have a virtual company in the sense that I on a subcontractor basis have instructional designers, photographers, designers, graphic artists, writers, producers, that sort of thing. And because I've assembled a good creative communications communication team, creative communications team, I can look at, uh, for example, um, Hufford Financial. There are financial services in Indianapolis who that, that specializes in dentistry, was asked by the Academy of General Dentistry to produce a series of workshops on financial planning for dentists. Well, Hufford Financial contacted me, hired me, and I co-created the instructional materials, the, the workbooks, the PowerPoint programs, the instructional design, the initiation forms, the all of the um, uh, registration forms, all the things that go into a workshop I created along with the principal content expert. I wasn't creating the content, but I was creating the instructional design, the packaging, and the design be behind all of it. And that frees up the content expert to do what they do best. And I earn a nice income out of producing it with the team that I already have in place. Instead of them working on my content, I have them work on other people's content, which enlarges my sphere of influence, and it teaches me more about the niche than I'm in. So you take their content, and you help them package it into a training module. Exactly right. And is your role only in the helping of the packaging? Is it? Are, are you doing any speaking or, or audio or video as part of this? What I do is after I create the materials, I then train the content experts on delivery. I also have a program that um, trains professionals on how to be interesting as speakers. And what I do is after I've created the instructional materials, then I work with the speakers themselves and teach them how to teach it. Here, use a story here. here. Here's how to introduce it. This is how to manage a question and answer period. Here's how to get people to respond to this. This is important here, this sort of thing. But generally, I stay below the radar. I don't, I don't deliver the programs. There's much greater leverage, Bill, for me 
and not delivering the programs. I'd rather not get on an airplane and make a great income than have to get on an airplane and make a great income. So how did this how did this ghosting come about? Uh, I suspect that you didn't start out with that as your business model. Something happened along the way. Well, my materials are well done, and and when people see them, like my books and my existing programs and the like, they'll say, "Oh, that's really nice," and blah blah blah, and. Um, and then when the opportunities come up, right now I'm working with an opportunity with a major dental manufacturer who they, are, they sell a very high-end dental product. And um, I went and visited them, showed them the materials that I've used and created for other content experts like themselves. And next Thursday I'll be making a presentation for them of training over 100 of their speakers and creating all of their instructional materials for it. It's a tremendous amount of business for me. It'll keep me busy for a year or two. And it was based on me showing them work that I've done for other people. Mm. So I suspect one of those things that they've seen that, that you put good quality into uh, that's helped with this subset of your business is you have a subscription series. I believe it's, uh, you told me it was eight 20-minute video training modules that, yeah. that people subscribe to. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a piece I call um, Yes Online. It's designed for dentists to sell everyday dentistry. Uh, one of my big frustrations, Bill, and I'm sure you share this, is you know you go do what you do. You do a one-day workshop, and, and what's the outcome of that workshop? What's the yield? What do people walk out with that they actually use on a day-to-day basis? And you know you, you get the um, evaluations at the end of the program. The host hands you the evaluations, and they're all smiles. So look, Kamala, you get all fives. I'm thinking, well, you know, so what? Getting all fives is easy. That's the easy part. The hard part is having the attendees go back and actually make a real change. Because unless they make a real change, then I'm constantly looking for new customers. But if attendees make real change and they go, huh, well, my wallet's a little fatter, or I've got less stress, or I'm liking my profession a little bit more, then they tend to pick up the phone and hire me for other stuff. And that way I don't have to prospect as much. So ha- having a strong reinforcement tool uh, has been really important for me, having attendees be successful with my work. So what the video program is, is a follow-up piece that I sell to attendees at my workshops. Uh, I'll be three-quarters of my way through the workshop. I kind of wait till I'm 100% sure everyone has gotten an incredible amount of value from what I'm doing, they're asking questions, they're talking to each other, they're uh, filling out evaluation forms, and I'll say, listen, if you like what you heard today, let me make this recommendation. The next step that you've got to take in order to really get this grounded into the culture in your practice is this DVD series. Let me show it to you right now. And I'll give them a little five-minute tutorial on the product right there. I'll show them how to use it. And I tell them, I'm not bashful about, I'm not bashful about, about me showing you my materials and asking you to buy it because you know what you asked me to help you become more successful well this is a step i know you need to take and if you're ready here it is i all all i do is sell one time during a workshop one time and i wait till near the end of the program and bam that's when i do it so i equip the television studio bill it's a webcasting studio i've got four thousand square feet i've got three cameras teleprompters i subcontract my um, producer, engineers, and production people, and we can, on the drop of a hat now, do webcasts literally worldwide with terrific production quality. I spoke to 
250 dentists in five different countries the other night, and it took us 10 minutes to turn on the machines, and away we went. So the video is really the next thing on my horizon. I strongly believe that the great speakers need to package themselves and distribute themselves in a way that it kind of breaks out of the old model. I don't want to live the rest of my life sitting on an airplane. The video's uh, subscription, so this is a reinforcement tool. You're selling it to the dentists who are in the room. They're their own entrepreneurs. They can write the check to, to purchase this. That's right. And you spend about five minutes, I guess, running them through the program. Do you have little clips from the video? Is it a little something you've put together that's kind of a self-contained module that you then you run it through and show them how to use it? What I do, Bill, what I do is I use, I use the videos all during the program. They don't even know that it's a product. I just show the videos. I said, oh, here's a video of a, a, a new patient interview. And so I show a video of it. And it's, they're short videos. They're about two-minute videos for these little excerpts that I show. Then half an hour later, I say, now, okay, now here's another video. And show them, so I'm showing three or four videos. And then uh, I'll say, after one of the videos, I say, oh, by the way, get by a show of hands. How many of you really enjoy these videos? All these hands go up. And then I go on again. And then near the end of the program, I, when I introduce my product, I say, oh, by the way, you know all those videos you guys have liked? That's what this is. So I've been using the product. I'll do the same thing with my books. I'll stand up there, I'll be talking about something, and I'll say, let me read you something. And I'll read it, and I'll put the book down. I won't even tell them I read it from my book. A little bit later on, I'll say, oh, here's another thing, and I'll read it. And then by the third time, I'll say, okay, now, those three things I read, they're all from this book. And all the heads go down, and they start making notes. And so I use my packaged wisdom during the program, but I don't reveal it until I'm ready to sell it. Mm -hmm. That way I build value to it before I'm asking them to buy it. Mm, packaged wisdom. So they're seeing it in use. And when you sell, quote-unquote sell, during a program, are, this, are these just during your public programs where people have come to you just to see you, or do you also do this when you're hired by a firm, for instance? Uh, I do it for everyone. And when, when firms hire me, if they get a little squirrely about, well, are you going to promote your programs? I say, you'd be crazy if you don't want me to promote your programs. Because, see, what I do, Bill, when I, when I work for a host, if the audience is successful, that benefits the host. Mm -hmm. I'm working for a, a law firm. Their, their attorneys are going to be, uh, if their attorneys are successful, that benefits the law firm. If I'm working for, um, let's say, Northwestern Mutual or Merrill Lynch, if I can get those salespeople, those financial reps, to be more successful in the field by using my books, that benefits the home company. And so I'm really clear with the host. Yeah, are there people who say, I absolutely don't want you to sell from the podium? Fine. But, but that's rare. Mm -hmm. So I looked at your website, and there is a tab for coaching. Tell me a little bit about your coaching model. What does that look like? Coaching I reserve strictly for people who have been through my workshops. The way I structure my process is that people will read a book or read an article or see me in a short seminar. Then I encourage them to, let's say, for example, if they, if they see me in a seminar, I encourage them to read the book. Then from the book, they attend a more in-depth workshop, which is usually two or three days. Then after that workshop, I sell them the follow-up DVDs and reinforcement tools. From there, now and only now, do they qualify for coaching. I don't do coaching, Bill, on people who aren't really already familiar with my material and have been using it for a while. I find that 
I am very impatient and very disruptive <laughs> as a coach. When I go into an office, whether it's a law office, a financial services, or dental, it doesn't make any difference. If people are asking me questions that I've already answered in, in, in my other materials, they're really not prepared for me. I want people who are already successful with my material and are looking to get to the next level. Consequently, um, if you look at a funnel, coaching is the narrowest part of the funnel. So Paul Homily, CSP, originally from Chicago, but now residing in North Carolina. Thank you so much for your contributions to NSA, particularly here today on VOE. This, my friends, is a perfect example of how a speaking business can evolve. Did you notice Paul's funnel approach to selling his products and services to his clients? Maybe not a totally new idea, but very well executed. Thanks again, Paul. With me is PEG Leadership Chair Jeffrey Rao. Jeffrey's here to tell us about a new and exciting benefit of PEG membership. Take it away, Jeffrey. Thank you, Bill. The all-access PEG Pass is the greatest value in NSA. Normally, you pay $25 to join one PEG. For $100, the all-access PEG Pass makes you a member of all 13 professional expert groups. Each PEG focuses on a unique skill, topic area, or market. The idea is to provide you with opportunities from which you can learn throughout the year. That's in between the conferences and the conventions. The list of PEGs includes our newest expert group, the EPEG. They're about teaching you how to incorporate social media and e-learning into your speaking business. We also have business coaching, consultants, diversity, educators, facilitators, health and wellness, humor, motivational keynotes, sales experts, seminar workshop leaders, storytellers, and the writers and publishers. If you're looking for ROI, and you should be, the $100 all-access PEG Pass will give you the best return on your investment. Each of the 13 professional expert groups provides a minimum of four learning events throughout the year. That's a minimum of four learning opportunities for you in one year. And last year, more than 80 events were offered by the PEGs. That's less than $2 for each educational program if you take advantage of them. This is a great value, especially when you consider that most of us are paying anywhere from $10 to more than $100 for one teleseminar or webinar. And here is a benefit that makes it even more valuable. If you don't have time to attend the live seminars or webinars, you will have access to the recordings on mynsa.org. And as an added bonus, you have access to all of the PEG archives. Any of the past programs that were recorded are available for you to download. You can purchase the all-access PEG Pass when you renew your NSA membership. And if your renewal isn't due yet, just call the NSA office. If you're interested in saving money and learning from all 13 PEGs, and you should be, then this is the way to go. The all-access PEG Pass and it's the best value in NSA. I hope you take advantage of it. With me again is Jill Conrath, author of two great books, Selling to Big Companies and Snap Selling. Jill, last time we got together, we talked about the concept of chunking and breaking these large organizations down into their smaller divisions so we could get a handle on how to reach them, how to identify who to talk to. So let's talk more about that. How do we define the decision makers, identify their names, and eventually get contact information? What we first need to do, Bill, is we actually need to define the position 
who could make a decision on the things that we talk about, the expertise that we have. So, for example, I would look for the VP of sales, but somebody else might look for the director of marketing or somebody else might be with an IT group. That's the starting point. And once you identify that, then you go to LinkedIn. And that's where you start your search. And in LinkedIn, in the upper right-hand corner on your profile page, there's an advanced search function. So you click there, and then you start entering in the data that you want. And for example, taking the position VP of Marketing, you'd put VP of Marketing in quotes, because that'll put it all together. Then you can select current. You want somebody who's the current VP of Marketing. And then you can put in the name of the company and the division. And you can also put in a location. So if you're looking for something in the Minneapolis area, or 50 miles from New Jersey. You can put all that in, and up will pop a whole lot of names. Now, that is the starting point for many, many searches and trying to define who the right person is. And what people need to realize is there are multiple right people in an account, too, so we're not just looking for one point of access. We're looking for many points. But beyond that, I'd suggest you take the LinkedIn information, and you might look for connections for people, and, and I know you teach referral coaching, and that's a great way to get referrals if you know somebody who knows somebody. But if you don't, then you need to move to plan. B, which is trying to uh, get more data on that person so you have contact information. And at that point, there are, there's uh, the human touch. You can actually get on the phone and start calling into these accounts and saying that you're looking to speak, you know, narrow it down to the division that you're calling and maybe the IT department or the marketing department and call in and, and say, I'd like to find out who, the na- who is the person who's most concerned about pro- product launches or who's the person who's in charge of your benefits consulting in this group. And so you narrow it down and you start getting names that way. It'll take a lot of calls, but you're going to pop up with a lot of names. And then the next thing I'd suggest, because there are multiple ways to get your foot in the door, is to go to uh, jigsaw.com. Um, which is a great resource online, and that's Jigsaw like Jigsaw Puzzles. And what you can do is, again, an advanced search on Jigsaw. Jigsaw isn't free, but it does have full contact information of a lot, a lot of people. And what you have to pay is a small minimum monthly charge, or you can actually enter in and barter some of the names of people and decision makers you have and get them for free. And Zoom Info, Zoom Info, Z-O-O-M, Info.com also is another great resource for this as well. So those are the multiple places that you can find great information online. And again, you're going to have multiple contacts, but that's what you actually want. And since we are experts who speak and we're going in to try to solve problems, looking for big relationships with these big companies, we're not looking to contact the meeting planner, Never, never. The meeting planner is the last person who gets involved. And what happens is that so many of the speakers are actually consultants, trainers, coaches as well. They work on business issues, and their job is to find the person who's most concerned about the issue. How they get work will be determined by what they find the problem is and if there's upcoming meetings and, and the scope of the project that they actually define with people as they get going. Meeting planners are the last thing, and I know everybody says go there, but not if you want to be successful in the corporate market. Great, thank you. Now, the next thing we want to talk to is, is how to get these people's attention. These are crazy, busy people, as you like to say. So when we get together next time, we'll talk about how to get the attention of these uh, decision makers. That sounds great. As a reminder, Jill Conrath is the author of two great books on this very topic, Selling to Big Companies and Snap Selling. Thank you, Jill. Next up is our monthly dip into platform skills. This month's CPAE, as well as CSP, Cabot Award winner and past NSA president, has not only built a hugely successful business, he continues to give and give to a great organization. Next time you see him, say thank you. So with me right now is Mark Sanborn, CSP, CPAE, 
Cabot Award winner, past president of the National Speakers Association. Mark, you're an accomplished speaker, and you know a lot of accomplished speakers. Talk to us about how the best get better, how good speakers become great, how great speakers stay great. Bill, I love this concept because I think the great paradox is that the better you become at anything, the harder it is to get better. When you're new to a profession, when you first take up a sport, your skill set is so undeveloped that improvements come fairly quickly, and they're not that difficult. But the longer you're doing something, the harder fought those improvements are. The gains are incremental rather than monumental. And so I think we need to pay attention because we obviously uh, encourage our clients to continue to improve. And if we aren't teaching what we practice, then uh, we're not very congruent. As I thought about that idea, how do the best get better, it dawned on me that there are some fairly simple ideas that are very powerful. And the first is that frequency makes us better. That simply says the more often we speak, the better we become if we pay attention. And and I recognize, and some of the listeners today are probably going, well, you know, practice doesn't make you perfect. Perfect practice makes you perfect. That is to say you have to pay attention to what you're doing if you're going to learn and improve. The problem is in the marketplace that the uh, speaking industry uh, has experienced in the last year or two, I think probably it's safe to say the average or typical speaker isn't speaking as much. That means you need to find opportunities to speak, even if it's for free. And by opportunities, I mean volunteering to speak for a a local organization in your community or taking on an assignment, not because you're doing it at a negotiated or a reduced or a free rate, but just because you want to stay in front of an audience. If you don't do that, you lose your edge. And I can't remember the illustration exactly, but I know you probably heard it about the the pianist who was asked about practice. And he said, if if, um, I miss a day, I notice if I miss two days, the audience notices. And I think it is uh, progressively worse when we've been off the platform. The second thing that I think makes us better is when we can do something to be more relevant to the audience. Relevancy makes it easy for them to apply our ideas to their situation. And I think the harder they have to work to extract, hmm, what does that mean and what can I do, the less effective we are. And one of the things that makes us relevant is to be a little more plugged into the meeting than someone who shows up for their presentation and then leaves. I like to attend at least the session ahead of me because I can't think of a time I've ever failed to pick up on something that I was able to plug into or reference. And one of the things that that communicates is not only that our material is relevant because we understand their world, but that we care enough to understand their world, that we're not just a hired speaker, but we're we're someone who is interested in the challenges they face and and truly giving them ideas to make their situation and their lot in life better. Uh, I know probably some other people will allude to this, but we say, you know, we go back to the basics. I've never believed that. I believe we go forward with the basics, that we sometimes have to revisit the basics, but the basics are what move us forward. And one of the basics that I continually remind myself of is that there are really three different focuses that we use when we're in front of the audience. If we're needy and we're new, or if we're established but let our egos get in the way, we're speaker-focused. That's when we're worrying about us. Boy, how do I look? How are they liking this? Are they taking notes? How come there's a guy reading USA Today in the back row? That's not a good position to come from. It it basically is a self-absorbed posture. It's uh, an ineffective focus. The second focus is when we're either using new material or we're more interested in our material than the audience, and I call that 
content focused. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, and you can sometimes see people think. Their eyes kind of give away the fact that they're searching around in their head for what to say or how to say it. Again, not an effective focus. The ultimate focus, and it sounds so simple and easy, but it's really difficult to maintain, is to be audience focused. To be so secure in what you have to say and your ability to say it that you can really focus on the audience and engage them. It allows you to be spontaneous. Uh, I'm a very prepared guy. I'm a left brain thinker and I think preparation determines your success more than any other single factor. I think you know most competitions are won before the field. Uh, the, the team takes the field. I think most speeches are grand slams before the speaker takes the stage. But that means I've got to continually ground myself in this idea of focusing on the audience. And of course preparation is what keeps you from becoming self-absorbed and worried about how you're coming across and it keeps you from becoming too focused on your material. And I guess the final thing that I would suggest for listeners in, in our association to think about is this. Uh, clients have lots of needs. There are lots of things that we could do, but basically I think we're best when we do what we like to do and what we're good at. And what we really have to find is that intersection between what the client or audience needs, what we like to do, and what we do best. And that intersection where we can deliver our ideas, have fun doing it, and engage and entertain the audience as we communicate important concepts, that's the sweet spot. That's what not only makes us good, but that's what provides us the motivation to keep getting better. Uh, I have always loved the uh, art of speaking, and that has been my primary focus. I'm certainly not uh, the world's greatest marketer. Uh, I have chosen by design to continually look at ways that I can, can tweak uh, and improve my presentation skills, not just to be better for me, not just to, to satisfy my own ego needs, but so that I can be better for the audience and deliver more value to them than they would have gotten had they hired me yesterday, last week, or a year ago. Talk to me about the role of writing and as it relates to becoming a better speaker. I've come to believe that the real value of social media, blogs and Twitter and the rest isn't just that it exposes us to more audiences and people, but that it forces us to regularly put our thoughts down in writing. And that when we write, and I know that writing and speaking are, are two different skill sets, but when we write, it creates a thought process that allows us to extract more meaning from our words, allows us to become more concise, and I think uh, often lets us visually see ways to improve what we say. I write because I think it makes me not just a better writer, but a better speaker. So I, I think uh, blogging, just having a commitment to writing a three to 500 word blog a week is, is not only a way to become more prolific as an intellectual property producer, but as a way to become a better speaker as well. Uh, Mark Sanborn, thank you so much for all the work you've done for NSA over the years and particularly for VOE today. Thank you. My pleasure. One of the consistent themes I'm getting from these short interviews with CPAEs is to be audience-focused. Have you ever seen a speaker that seems to have a thin veil between them and the audience? They're good at what they do but don't seem quite real. They give a great performance but don't really connect. Forgive the sports metaphor, but to me it's like hitting the baseball through the gap between left and center field, rounding all the bases but getting tagged out at home plate, not quite hitting that home run. I think this audience focus concept makes sure that that doesn't happen with us and our audiences. 
Randy Gage is our convention chair for our 2011 convention in Anaheim. Theo Andros is a member of his team responsible for the concurrent sessions. Both Randy and Theo are working very hard to make sure we have the best learning opportunities possible. Here are two short segments where we hear from both Randy and Theo about the summer convention. My first question to Randy was, what will be new and or different about our next convention? It'll be totally different, but I hope people understand we're not being different for the sake of being different. We're being different to say, how can we make the convention more relevant, more applicable, a better investment for the attendees? We want this event to help you get more bookings, to help you be better on the platform, to help you run your business more profitably. So it'll be a lot of... uh, interactive stuff. There's some master classes with some of the most amazing people in our profession. We have four different master classes that will be done from the, the, the main stage, general session. And we've got special, uh, uh, an essay version kind of of a tonight show, uh, So You Think You Can Speak, where people will watch a presentation of newer speakers getting coached by platform professionals, a uh, real-time session where with a, a, some pretty big-name guests and special guests. But again, everything really just relevant to being a better professional in the space being more successful in business, running the business more profitably. Well, sounds exciting. And next time we get together, I'm going to ask you a little bit about who's going to be there so we can get excited about who we're going to learn from. Thanks, yeah, Randy. people got to listen next next issue because we have amazing people going to be on the platform. They're going to want to hear and see these people. Great. Thank you. So, Theo, talk to us a little bit about what you're planning for the summer convention in terms of the breakouts. Sure. Thank you, Bill. Well, first, let me thank and acknowledge all the speakers who've submitted to present a convention this summer. We've been overwhelmed with a record number of submissions, and it's real testimony and a tribute to people's willingness to give back to this organization. As a result, it's made my job really tough because I have so many great people from which to choose. And as our team looks at all of the applicants for these slots, even though the economy has been tough for some and even though some people have struggled, there are also a lot of speakers out there that are coming off record years. And so what we're doing at convention this summer is we're going to have fewer concurrents that are going to last longer and give participants an opportunity to spend more time with the presenter and go deeper into the content. And our, uh, our intention is to make all of these concurrents relevant to wherever you are in your speaking career. And we've got quite a lineup coming up this summer. And we're also drawing a few experts from outside of our association that will add tremendous value. So whether you're a, f- a first-timer or this is your 10th convention, there'll be something of tremendous value for you here. It's going to be a very uh, dynamic and compelling program, and we look forward to seeing you all in Anaheim on July 30th through August 2nd. Well, Theo, I know you're putting a lot of work into this, and you're reaching out to make some great contacts with folks to bring a lot of value to us. And I'm going to follow up with you next month to see how your plans are coming and uh, give us an update on what we can expect at the convention this summer. Great. Thanks, Bill. If you're new to NSA or the speaking business, make sure you bring a large notebook in which to write all your ideas that you're going to get from the convention. You'll be like a kid in a candy store of ideas. And for our veterans, remember the NSA convention, and NSA in general, 
It's not just about the structured learning sessions. It's about the relationships you start and maintain over time. When done well, this creates a year-long learning opportunity. I tap into my NSA friends on a regular basis to get clear with my ideas, to solve problems, and even do business from time to time. One of my biggest clients in my career came from referral from an NSA colleague. Right now, if you haven't done it already, stop this recording, record the dates in your calendar so you don't book any engagements that will conflict with this summer's convention in Anaheim. Could you use a little breathing space? I know I could. Don't worry, help is on the way in the form of Mr. Breathing Space himself, Jeff Davidson. This time, Jeff, we're going to talk about technology. Obviously, a lot of new technology coming to us at a very fast pace that seems to create more work rather than make our work life more efficient. Uh, Every piece of new technology adds more rather than taking away. So talk to us about some solutions, some antidotes to the technology challenges that we face. We have to recognize that each piece of useful technology for a speaker, and there are ways to determine what's useful and what's not, each piece of technology that's useful comes with both both pluses and minuses. The pluses are usually easy to identify. The manufacturers, the vendors themselves in their advertising literature, in the packaging, will tout exactly what that piece of equipment or piece of technology does. Fellow speakers will tell us, um, articles we can find on the web. What we rarely encounter is the downside. What do I give up as a result of acquiring this piece of technology, of using it, of incorporating it in my life and in my business? And what we give up boils down to a handful of the same things regardless of the technology. Time invested in learning it, of course the 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 money to acquire it but then with some how much homage we must pay to this technology in the case of the cell phone which is a wonderful device which aids everyone being able to be in control and be in touch with people around the globe we give up concentration capability in some instances we give up the chance to have free uninterrupted stretches where we can do creative thinking When you're designing a new product or new service, you need to have some of that quiet, long stretch that you can't otherwise get. So when it comes to technology, we need to rule it rather than have it rule us. Now, you may ask, what about new technology coming down the pike? Other speakers have it. Uh, Should I acquire it? Should I update what I already am using? Most of the time, we get ahead of the curve. Most of the time, we get devices before we fully understand them, before we can fully make them operational. The key I like to use, and I do this with my audience, is when your clients are asking about it or when your clients are using it, that's a good signal it's time for you. So I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of these uninterrupted stretches. I was just having my mastermind meeting, and I was telling them I I was having trouble working on some new very important critical products for myself video oriented products and I was a slave to my email my texting and I wasn't able to create these uninterrupted stretches and so they recommended that I turn my email off Uh, one person recommended that I actually go to the server and have one of my employees turn it off so it's no longer in my control it's in someone else's control So talk to us a little more about maybe what you do to create these uninterrupted stretches to create, to use your moniker, breathing space. 
I realized several years back, and many other speakers have realized this as well, that especially when you're doing what I call first-time thinking, you're going to write a new book, you're going to design, choreograph a new speech, you're going to develop uh, slides for a presentation. When you're engaged in first-time thinking, that is when it's especially important to have the stretch where you know you will not be interrupted. Now here's a distinction, Bill. It's not just that I have 30 minutes here. It's 30 minutes where I absolutely know that no one will stick their head in the door, that I won't get a phone call, that I will not be getting a beep, whatever it happens to be, because we want to be on that beautiful wavelength, flow, whatever you want to call it. And the amazing thing that happens when we give ourselves this gift is often the time that we marked out isn't even necessary. We finish in 28 minutes instead of the 30. So what I've done personally over the years is I leave my office and I go to the room next to my office where there's no clock, there's nothing that ticks, there's nothing that's plugged into the wall. And I stay there until I get the job done. When I come out the world is like a vacation. And they'll, there'll be email, there'll be phone messages, all that stuff, and you'll catch up with it, it'll be fine. But when you can give yourself that opportunity to marinate in your own mind, that's when your creativity just shoots up off the charts. You do wonderful things, you feel great about what you accomplished. Thank you, Jeff. We look forward to your next segment. I met Steve Gilliland, CSP, at the Million Dollar Speaker Group in Orlando last summer. Steve impressed me with his business model and business savvy. So here's your next million dollar idea, which really isn't an idea at all. Or is it? So, Steve Gilliland, what are you doing that's working for you right now? Interesting question. I think I would probably describe it as more of a great person versus a great idea. I think a lot of times we're looking for that next great idea. Uh, for me, uh, the light bulb came on when it was a conversation I had with somebody and we started talking about you know, hiring the right person. Uh, I think a lot of us have the marketing savvy, and if we don't, we outsource it. I think a lot of us have that administrative person, but it was that salesperson. And it wasn't that, hey, let's throw an ad in the paper and get somebody that needs a job, and they are, they're a type A personality. I was looking more for that person who really was a sales professional, somebody that, you know, that was their passion, that, you know, that's something that they felt really comfortable doing. So for me, it wasn't the idea as much as it was the person. And, and hiring that person, uh, giving them uh, a salary plus a bonus plan, uh, you know, plus benefits that would make them extremely uh, motivated to come in and, and sell what we're selling. And, and one of those things is me, you know, to get onto the platform and, and the products that we have. So, you know, for me, Bill, it was, it was all about the person. And I always believe that if you surround yourself with smarter people, uh, they're going to take you to a level that you really want to be at. Tell us how you found this person. I put an ad in two newspapers, recruited it as as something of a high level, a sales position, and I wanted to separate my ad from everybody else. So I actually went to uh, a friend of mine who pretty much is considered an expert in the visual marketing, and I said, I want I want that person to know right away they're going to join an organization that is an elite organization, and it's not just something that they're going to be out there uh, schlepping uh, from door to door. 
Great, Steve, thank you. You're so welcome, Bill, thank you. You know, I think Steve is onto something. We can't just be idea junkies at NSA. Without the right people in place within our organization, no idea, no matter how good it is, will not produce the results we want. As I mentioned before, one of the reasons I took on VOE was because I have a tremendous amount of respect for our current president, Kristen Arnold. She's a clear thinker and really cares about you maximizing your investment in NSA. Take it away, Kristen. This is Kristen Arnold, and I am sitting here with Mary Laverty, CPAE, Speaker Hall of Fame. And she just did a great session at the Speaker Keynote Lab about sponsorships. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity for us just to talk a little bit about what is a sponsorship? Well, I want you to think about it in terms of it being a partnership that says, I can help you reach your market. I can advance your cause. I can help you spread your message. I can help you live your mission. That's really what a sponsorship is. Hmm. So a sponsorship is more of a partnership where it's mutually beneficial for the speaker as well as the, the sponsor, the client. How, do, how is it mutually beneficial? Well, one word Sam Horn taught me, and that word is scale. I know what I know, and if I can figure out what it is you need, my power as a speaker is to help leverage that and use my skills, my power, my influence to advance your cause, and sort of vice versa. You know, Napoleon Hill said, when two people come together, a third mind is created. So when you think of sponsorship, a lot of times we think of it as just one way. What will they give me? You know, they'll pay my fee and I'll get to go give speeches or whatever it is. You will be much more successful and have it on a bigger, bigger scale if you can think about, well, what is it that they need? Figure out what it is they need and then do that. Well, that sounds simple enough, but I'm sure it's a lot more complex than that. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, who is a great sponsor? It has to be somebody that I really believe in. So for example, I've had spokesperson roles or sponsorships, if you want to call it. It's kind of a fine hair difference for me, uh, the two words. So Ragu, Play Express, the Better Sleep Council, Hershey's Kisses. Because and you're a wellness speaker. You speak on life balance. I speak but on <laughs> Hershey's Kisses, life balance. Well, what I did was I said, OK, how could I use, and this is what I mean about bridging the gap, how could I use what I know know and advance their cause in a very authentic, real way that is totally in line with what I believe in. One of the uh, principles that I teach is that connection creates balance. So connecting with your kids would, would, would be one thing that would keep us in balance. And the way we do that is to have rituals. So for example, when I went on TV for them um, on one of the morning talk shows, I said, you know, it's back to school. And it's a very stressful time for a lot of us, especially for your kids who are in a new grade. What they need to know is who they belong to, who's their support. So for example, I'm always looking for products that will help that cause. Hershey's just came out with these little uh, candies with messages on them. So let's say you're the family that every Friday you drop one Hershey kiss in the lunch bag. And your child knows every Friday they're gonna open that bag in the lunchroom and out comes that chocolate kiss that <sighs> says, I love you. 
Now, I can genuinely advance the cause of Hershey Kisses because honestly, if every busy, harried parent who feels guilty because they don't get it all done and they're not always there, if they gave their child a message that says, let me tell you who you belong to. You belong to the family that gets a Hershey Kiss every Friday. Oh, that is great. And what's great is that you're making that connection between what your message is and what their value proposition is without being salesy. You know, I have a couple of companies, um, YoPlay, for example, Calcium, and uh, Reclast, um, Calcium, and Biactive, which is Calcium. So there's a little bit of a theme here. My mother has severe osteoporosis. From the neck up, she's a sassy 86-year-old. And from the neck down, she has multiple spinal fractures and is all bent over. She's very frail. She's quite angry about being old, actually, because she's so foxy. She missed both of my daughter's weddings because she has severe osteoporosis. I am in a position to be able to change that for people. And so I partner, we go back to whether it's a spokesperson or a sponsorship, I can partner with these companies that say, I believe in you, and I know that my message will reach your market, so let's come together and do some good. And this is what I want to encourage um, the listeners here, is to start thinking about what are my taglines, who is my market, who could I advance the cause of very authentically that is in line with my mission. And when I partner with a company whose cause I can advance, the scale goes up and we both benefit. And it's a win-win. Thank you, Mary Laverty. Appreciate your thoughts on sponsorship. Thank you. NSA is also partnering with companies to advance their cause, but only if we genuinely believe our members will benefit from that relationship. NSA is in a position where we can help our sponsor partners to reach their target market, and that would be us, the professional speaker. As Mary said, we can leverage our scale, our skills, our influence to help these folks spread their message. And the benefit to you is that you're exposed to people, products, and services that can make your life as a professional speaker better, easier, happier. I think you get the idea. Now, the other much more tangible benefit to you is that these sponsor partners augment our revenues, allowing us to keep our fees as low as possible and do some things that we otherwise couldn't afford to do. For example, the NSA University teleseminars are now free to our members because we've been able to find sponsors for our teleseminars. You gotta love that. So next time you read a speaker magazine, glance at the advertisements. Or at the convention, take some time to stroll the exhibit hall. After listening to a teleseminar, check out their websites. If the value proposition is there, then you may actually decide to do business together. And please, don't forget to do your own due diligence. Be a smart buyer and make sure that their products or services will actually advance your own cause. And if it doesn't, well, then you can at least smile and thank them for their support of NSA. Some of our key sponsors are eSpeakers, Entrepreneur Press, Infusionsoft, and Greenleaf Book Group. Stop by and say hello and say thank you. And finally, if you happen to know a product or service that you personally believe in, you think your fellow members would dig it, and the company would be interested in reaching the professional speaker market, please pass along the name to Steve Kamek at steve at nsaspeaker.org. It's all about creating a win-win with our sponsor partners, and thank you for all your support. So we're more than halfway through our NSA year. As always, I hope you get at least one or two actionable ideas from every edition of VOE. 
I've had a number of NSA members write to me to tell me what ideas they've acted on from VOE and what results they've already produced. So the key word here is actionable. This is Bill Cates reminding you that ideas do not make you more successful. Acting on ideas makes you more successful. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.